Kevin. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you again. Just uh, our thanks to you for opening our service and to draw our thoughts not only to uh, Esther, but also to the life of our Queen, uh, as we're right to do so. Thanks to our musicians, uh, Hazel and Rich, your support at the back, uh, and to our stewards um, as well. Now, let's put to the test if our stewards have done an adequate job this morning. I trust you've all got a handout. If you haven't got a handout, stick your hand up, and one will be placed into your hand, I'm sure. If not, we shall, uh, we shall carry on. Uh, now, I was asked at the beginning as I walked into church this morning, are there any prizes? Will this be particularly marked? No, is the answer to that question. So it's up to you whether you complete the, the missing bits or not. I leave it up to you, but I would suggest you do so because it helps you as we follow along in these thoughts uh, of this quite incredible, uh, incredible book. You know that if you've seen me preach before that I normally have... I normally have slides as well to accompany my sermons, and since you have not yet developed a third eye, I will uh, forego the slides this morning, and we'll just use uh, the handout instead. Uh, as uh, I was once asked, I once set up, I was going to a church um, to, down, in, down in Cornwall, I was setting up the projector, and this uh, lady came in, she said, oh, I see we're going to have an electric sermon this morning. To which I said, yes, after I finish preaching, madam, you will be electrified. So we leave it at that, and whether this handout helps or not in that, we will see uh, as we go. But you see, this morning we are back in this story of Esther. We're back in the story, the life story of a queen. You see, this this week then we saw the death of a queen as, as, as Kev has rightly brought to our attention for whom faith was of uttermost importance. I too uh, admired the BBC in the way that they helped this particular uh, message and these particular inferences brought out, and it was it was uh, it was Nicholas Witchell, the BBC's royal correspondent, that perhaps summed up our queen in the most uh, succinct way possible when he said this: "He said a queen driven by duty and sustained by faith." You see, now that I imagine was the life of Esther. As we read her stories, we see how God worked through her and indeed the people around her. She was a lady who I would assume, and has taken as fact from what she says later on in her book, as we will cover, that she was driven by duty to her nation, but also sustained by faith. And yet what I like to think about Esther as I uh, read her words and I read the book and I see how her life unfolded, we can draw those thoughts and comparisons alongside our uh, long, no longer queen. But remember, for one of the events in her life, I can't remember, it was a, a jubilee that there was a book produced, and I've seen it floating around on the back. And on the front of that book, it says, the servant queen and the king she serves. And see, that's how I imagine Esther to be. You know, we, we know that from history, history would tell us that, that the way that you approached King Xerxes was dependent upon the outstretching of the royal scepter. If you approached the king unannounced, uninvited, and the king didn't hold out that royal scepter, that's the end of your life. We read that, and that was something Esther herself experienced, that we read as a lady who came before the all-powerful king. And yet we are four years on from her ascension to the throne. We are four years on for her replacement as Queen Vashti. We are four years on from what we picked up when we were thinking about with Chris, that how she is now queen, a queen who wasn't expecting to be queen. And now we're introduced to a new character, uh, as Jason read for us. Right at the very beginning, we're introduced to Haman, the Agagite. 
Now, why we know that the Jews particularly were interested in where your name came from and what your name means and how your, your uh, family line impacted you as an individual. You will note the, the, the fact that Haman isn't a Jew. Haman is, in fact, from Susa or from Persia. Remember, the Persian Empire was the nation that bashed up the Babylonians. No mean feat. And so here is a man now named and elevated to a position, and yet we are told his surname. You see, the Agagites were long-time enemies of the Jews. You'll notice in the first bit of your notes that there's an excerpt there from 1 Samuel 15. You can read that at your leisure. In summary, King Saul was told to go and destroy Elimelech. He was destroyed to go, told to go and wipe out this nation, a nation that were going to face judgment from God. And yet Saul chose to save some. He took Agag, the king, and he kept him to one side, and he devoted the rest of his people to destruction. You see, now what we find out then in Esther 3 from that 600 year earlier disobedience of God by a king, we now find a man who himself is willing to put the Jewish nation and the Israelite nation and devote them to destruction. And so I trust you all have a pen this morning. For the first thing that I, I, I want you to take away from this is that once again we see that the, the messianic line is under threat. Because of what that king did 600 years earlier, we see now that God, which is the next piece that I want you to fill in, has promoted Haman to be second in command of the great Persian Empire. And yet what we find that Haman himself is given this position of power, and with power comes pride. And that's our, the title of our talk this morning, Pride and Power. You see, verse 2 then sees that power demonstrated. The king's servants bowed down. Haman. My friends, I don't stand up here as an anti-monarchist or an anti-leader or some form of anarchist. I can be described as many ist or isms, but that is not one of them, I can assure you. There is nothing scripturally wrong at all with bowing down to those who are in authority over you. Nothing wrong with that at all. Scripture paints a very clear picture of praying for our government and for those that are in authority over us. You couldn't get a more contrasting picture. And yet, so why then does Mordecai not bow? If that is scripturally accurate, if that is scripturally so, why does Mordecai say, no, I'm not going to bow? You see, because Haman is an ungodly man. He's a progenitor of the, Amal the Amalekites that we talked about after all. He was promoted to second in command of one of the biggest and greatest empires the world has ever seen. And yet here is a man who you will see right at the very outset of your notes. says a man with hereditary Jewish hatred. For him, this nation were the scourge of whatever gods he believed in green earth. They were the people described in Esther 3 as people who disobeyed the king's command. Remember what I said, if you walked before King Xerxes and you didn't do what you told you to do, you would suddenly become detached at the neck. 
That was the way that the king dealt with those who were disobedient to him. And yet here we see a man of courage, here we see a man of conviction, and here we see a man of faith who says quite publicly, I'm not going to bow. You see, what is interesting about this man, this man Haman is he is a man of revenge. You'll notice there's a quote from Lewis Smedes in your notes that says this, the problem with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered course. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain. And so that is the act that Haman is willing to commit in this chapter. That is the path that Haman is willing to take. He wants to get revenge, remember, against that hereditary people. Way up in his family tree, King Agag was threatened by Saul. They wiped out his entire nation of people, and he is the last few remnants. Now he's got his chance, because now he's second in command of one of the biggest empires the world has ever seen. And yet here we have one man of courage, of commitment, of faith in God, who is willing to stand up and say, I won't bow. You see, this isn't the first time that the nation of Israel has stood up against some oppressive leader bent on, their, uh, on smashing their way of life, and it won't be the last. Because, friends, it won't be the last for us either. Kevin so rightly brought to us that the Queen was recommended in her various speeches to not mention her faith. A lady who stood for faith in Christ, and yet her advisors, her confidants, her friends said to her, oh, Madam, I think it might be a good idea if you leave faith alone. Friends, if we call ourselves Christians here this morning, there will be times where we will have to stand up for what we believe in. There will be times that we will have to, root, have to not bow. Something that we're going to look at a little bit later. But I want to talk about something now that perhaps has become unpopular in our, our churches over recent years. Something I've certainly not needed a great deal of preaching on. You see, Scripture points to people who can only be described collectively as antichrists. That is quite literally someone who opposes themselves who opposes, rather, Christ and puts themselves in the place of God. That's what an antichrist is. Now, I want to take you back for a little history lesson. Let's go back to prior to the Roman Empire. We had two kingdoms, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. The Seleucids were the people of, of Syria, of modern-day Iraq. The Ptolemies, well, they were quite simply the North Africans, the people of Egypt, and all around that part of the world. Most of you would have heard of Alexandra the Great. What happened to Alexandra the Great? He, he died and his, and his kingdom was split into how many generals? Four. Panic not, I'm not going to test your knowledge of ancient history. Yet one of the kings that came from that line was a man called Antiochus Epiphanes IV. You'll see there in his notes. 
He was a man who called himself God manifest. So we said that an antichrist is someone who opposed to God to Christ and places themselves in the place of God. You see, what we know about Antiochus is this, that he brought these nations supposedly together by social engineering. Perhaps a topic that we might discuss another time. Yet he was the king who tried to stop Jewish acts of worship. You'll see there is an excerpt, another excerpt from Daniel chapter 8. You see, what we have in heaven is a man who thinks he has ultimate power. What we have in Antiochus is a man who thinks he has ultimate power. You see, Daniel 8 and verses 9 to 12 says this, Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. For that, friends, is Israel. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host of heaven and some of the stars threw it down to the ground, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as the prince of hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. It will act and prosper. You see, friends, that is a picture of what Antiochus tried to do with the Jewish nation. He wanted to stop these Jewish acts of worship. He recognized that he had socially engineered every part of his empire with, except, with this one exception. The people of God would not stop their morning and evening sacrifices. And as Antichrist, the king couldn't, or rather as an Antichrist, the king couldn't have that. And so he commits this incredible ultimate act of defiance. He sacrifices a pig on the Jewish altar in the temple. How many times, friends, have you made those words in Matthew where Jesus says the abomination of desolation? Let the reader understand. I have given you a very surface level explanation of what those words mean. What has that got to do with Antichrist? What has that got to do with Haman? Friends, there will come a day, and for reasons I'm not going to go into now that I believe will be soon, the Antichrist will appear. And I don't know how many are there are of you here this morning. I could probably rough guess it. But we'd all have a slightly different opinion of who or what the Antichrist will be. Some people will say a politician. Some people will say a world leader. Some people will say a leader of industry. Some people will say whatever. Listen, friends, it doesn't matter. We will be left in no doubt as to who the Antichrist, the Antichrist, will be. Because Scripture says very clearly, the whole world will know who this person is. Who this person is. And the whole world will acknowledge him as a powerful ruler, and you will have desires of preventing people from worshipping God. And scripture tells us that he will be identified by the mark of the beast, and his number shall be 666. 
Friends, do you see how Scripture folds together to point us to what is going to happen in the time of the end? How Haman was a man who stood up as a type of Antichrist. And he said to the Jews, or rather he said to the king, these people need to go. Antiochus came along centuries later and said, no, 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 these people can live. But they're not doing that. And here we are in our modern world with our Instagrams and our Snapchats and our whatever else you want to call it. And we have a world that says, no, 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 no. You can be whatever you want to be, but you're not saying that. Do you see how scripture points to a time where we will face oppression? See how scripture points to a time where people are forced to bow? So that moves us on to our question this morning, question number one. Mordecai didn't bow. Mordecai doesn't bow. What or who do we bow down to? What or who do we bow down to? Friends, it's a personal question that only you can answer. But we need to acknowledge that there are things in our lives that we bow down to that aren't God. Let this be absolutely clear. King Xerxes said bow, and you didn't bow, that phrase that you're going to remember from this morning, you will become detached at the neck. And yet Mordecai says time and time and time again, I'm not going to bow. How many of us here this morning have ever been placed in that position we need to make that stand. Where we say, I am not going to bow. You see, Mordecai has made the distinction between world leader and bowing to a world leader, giving them the respect they deserve, and he recognizes that Haman is a leader who is promoting himself to the position of ultimate power. He is saying, it is all about me. So why then, why does Mordecai make a stand? Friends, because Mordecai is a man of God. Antiochus, as you'll read in your notes, the next two bits to fill in, threw truth to the ground. That he was not interested in what was happening in the temple. He was not interested. He wanted people to bow down and worship him. And yet Mordecai makes a stand. Why? Because, friends, he was a man of God. He was a man who stood up for truth. He was a man who stood up for what was right. He was a man who stood up and he did what God asked him to do, to put no one above God. So, there's a question for us. Who or what do we bow down to? How many times, friends, have we had that opportunity to stand for God and for truth? 
And rather than resolve like Mordecai, we find ourselves bowing down to the figurative Haman. We're not really told the specific reasons behind Mordecai bowing, nor rather not bowing to Haman. Whatever it was, the pressure that Mordecai is under to bow to those who say you can get rid of God's people, to those who say you are not allowed to be a believer, you are not allowed to have that opinion, you are not allowed to say that to me. It's the same pressure we face on a day-to-day basis as God's people. You see, as believers, we cannot honour someone who asks, who asks us to contradict God's law. Yet there is a call on us to obey the laws of our land. That is absolutely right. Yet we cannot obey those laws when they contradict the word of God. So, verse 3. Listen, we're not going to go verse by verse at that sort of depth, all right? We'll come on to some bigger stuff later on. But verse 3. So Haman gets wind of Mordecai's disobedience. And rather than let that bruised ego out on Mordecai, he decides to, endure, to destroy the entire nation of God's people. Haman decides that the best way for him to deal with Mordecai's insubordination is to drag up old grudges. And as the second most powerful man in the empire, it's the destruction of the Jews that will be the ointment to restore that particular bruise. That's what he wants to do. He decides. He decides that he wants to get rid of this nation of people. There is a lot at stake we need to understand with Haman's plot. If the genocide is successful, God's plan fails, and there is no Messiah. That is what at stake in this fascinating conversation with Haman and the king. You see, this is more than the eradication of a people Unbeknown, Haman is playing the Antichrist again. He is putting himself in the position to stand against God himself. In Haman's mind, he is taking the opportunity to settle old scores. And yet what we realize, as we understand scripture, that if this plan succeeds, if this plan had succeeded, there's no Messiah. There's no Messiah, there's no salvation. If there's no salvation, then God is a liar. There is an awful lot at stake with this one instance in the book of Esther. We are talking thousands of years of people's history. If there's no Messiah, we have no queen that stands on telly and says, I follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. Do you see the significance of one conversation in the place of history? Do you see how important this one little event is? This is not just somebody bowing down to a king. I don't know if there was a Mrs. Mordecai. There could well have been. Miss Mordecai or Mrs. Mordecai could have had a very big family. I don't know. But imagine being Mrs. Mordecai. And you've seen and heard the king's edict. You are to bow down to Haman. And you come home and you say, 
to Mrs. Mordecai and the family, I'm not going to bow. I want that phrase to just wash over you this morning. I am not going to bow. Now you would say, no, look, come on. Cop Mordecai, come on, look. We know that this is just a king. We know that God will have a plan. We know that God will bring it through. We know that God will work these things out. Scripture tells us, look, it's just one little bow and it doesn't matter. It matters who we bow down to. It matters who we pledge allegiance to. And it matters who we make a stand for. So as we move then into verses 7 to 11, it, we arrive at this in question. How do we trust God in the face of oppression? If it matters who we bow down to, if those things are so significant, how do we face the world when it oppresses us? You see, Haman was a man who thought he had ultimate power. He was a man who thought he had the ultimate say in everything that happened. You see, this simply isn't the case. We are about to see who really has ultimate power. You see, Haman, like many people today, consulted the stars, tarot cards, whatever they might be. You're going to meet somebody all dark and handsome. You're going to come into money. Whatever it might be, there is a world out there that survives based upon what these things are saying. And Haman used them to try and predict when the Jews would be destroyed. So Haman approaches the king. And he gets the, the nod of approval. He gets the signet ring to go out and to make these things happen. So we now see that Haman has a plan. He wants to be the next person to try and annihilate this Jewish nation. You see, but Proverbs 16, as you'll see in your notes, tells us who is really in charge. It tells us who is really pulling the strings, who is really making the decisions. You see, you're reminded here that the ultimate power comes from God. It is he who is in control. He is he who is there with us in the oppression. He is there to bring his people, us, through whatever oppression may face. And friends, we would be utterly stupid to turn around and think that it is easy to trust God in the face of oppression. You have all experienced that oppression, if you're believed in Christ here this morning, in one way or another. We know how difficult it is. Philippians itself tells us that we are to suffer for Christ's sake. Think of the story back in Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are there to face the same instance that Mordecai faced. They were told to bow and they said no. We're not going to battle. As those, no doubt, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of leaders from all over the empire bowed before Nebuchadnezzar. I have this picture in my mind of three men standing so far away in the back, away from the throne. And yet when it comes to the king, there are three people who will not bow to you. And they end up in the furnace. They end up in the intense pressure and the intense heat 
and they face God's oppression. And the king looks into the furnace and he says to one of his servants, did we not send three men into the furnace? Remember, this was Nebuchadnezzar who'd said, what God will deliver you from my hand? I am ultimate power. I am ultimate responsibility. I am your ultimate reality. And yet, the next thing you come to in your notes, friends, is this. God is the God who saves. He is the God who saves, redeems, and delivers. You see, because those few verses later in that book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar himself said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, as we understand to be Jesus, and delivered his servants and trusted them. See, what we realize when we look at all those dates given in Esther 3, as we look at all those things, that you work it all out, and you arrive a day before Passover. You arrive the day that supposedly was cast by Lot, that Haman decided was to be the day that these Jews were annihilated, the day before Passover. You tell me God hasn't got a sense of humor. The day before Passover, the day in which the nation would remember that they were redeemed. They were a people that could know that they could trust in a God who saves then and now. You see, what we realize as we come to our final verses of our chapters together is that we happened upon a king who signed the death warrant of his own wife. Esther was a Jew. And so Haman and Mordecai contrived, uh, Haman and the king contrived to get rid of this Jewish nation. And so Esther is a Jew. And King Xerxes has just signed the death warrant of his own queen. Can you imagine how the evening meals conversation took place that night? I mean, I don't know about you. I've been to people's houses, and I'm sure if you've been to my house and Claire and I have had a bit of a disagreement, sometimes the atmosphere can be described as frosty. I mean, I don't know how that atmosphere would have gone particularly well. You know? In comes the king, sits at his table, at, the, at his seat, his appointed place, and the servants run round and they gather the food and everything else, and in walks the queen, and she sits at her allotted place, and the king says to the convent, to the queen, oh, well, my dear, how did your day go? Oh, well, you know, I paid calls on Mrs. Such and Such, and I did a bit of charity work for this or Mrs. Such and Such. Oh, and by the way, this man turned up and told me that I was going to be killed. I can't imagine that particular conversation working out very well that evening. I can't imagine they settled down to cuddle up and watch Compton Abbey that night in quite peace and tranquility. And yet all this comes about because of one man's pride and power. And so the final question we need to look at is this morning is this. What are the dangers, friends, of pride and power? 
What is the danger of pride? You'll see two quotes there from men I hold in high regard, Stott and Lewis. It was pride that puffed up the chest of the Pharisees. Yet it was humility that led the tax collector to humbly make his offering before God. You see, the king and the Haman, they're pleased with their work. And they sit down to the prevalent equivalent of Bollinger, or whatever it may or may not be. They sit down, as our final verses, uh, verse tells us, and they think together. Pride of their achievement. They've thrown the whole city into confusion. Pride has overcome. And the ultimate danger in that pride is this. That we can think we are more important. That we know more than God. And the ultimate danger of pride is we ignore the gift of salvation. That's the ultimate danger of pride. We ignore the gift of salvation. And if we ignore the gift of salvation, friends, then hell is our destination. Let's make this absolutely clear. If we ignore the gift of salvation, then hell is our ultimate destination. You see, we like to think like Haman, that we are the one that controls dates and times and when things are going to happen and that we are masters of our own destiny. Yet it is Christ himself who warns us against being proud and his word should be enough for us to step and take notice. You see, because pride causes destruction. And yet, what we realize from the story of Esther and Mordecai is that as the story goes on, they fight against the power of men. And in some respects, as Kev has prayed, we don't see God in Scripture, in the story of Esther. But we see his hand working in the background. We see his fingerprints through the book. We see his hand and his guidance on the life of Esther and Mordecai. He is the God whom we bow down to. He is the God we trust in the face of oppression. He is the God who teaches humility rather, uh, rather than pride. And when all hope is lost, he is the God, and this is the final thing for you to fill in, who is victorious. You see, the victory is ours because of what Christ achieved on the cross. The victory was the Jews in the long run in the story of Esther. Haman, well, it didn't turn out very well for him, as we will pick up a little bit later on. But when we see the Antichrist come, and as Matthew talks about the end of the age, when all hope seems lost, we know that God is victorious. Mordecai and Haman, they had interactions with the God who is the ultimate power. Friends, as Christians and believers, if that is us this morning, we are people who have an interaction and a relationship with the God who has ultimate power. I trust your word has been, his word has been a challenge to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as we've looked and studied your word this morning, we have seen this incredible story that you have chosen to save your people once again. 
that, Father, when all hope is lost, when the people that faced oppression, when the day of their judgment was supposedly fallen, that it fell before the Passover, the day that they remember your salvation. Lord, help us to be a people who remember your salvation, who bow down to you alone in the offering of our lives, who trust you in the face of oppression, who are a people that are driven by humility rather than pride. And yet, Father, we can take those last statements and apply them to a queen whom we mourn this morning. But, Father, she was a woman who had it all figuratively. And yet, Father, she gave her life in service of this country. And yet, Lord, we recognize and we realize that she is now in glory with you. So, Lord, bless us as we go into this week challenges us with the weeks to come lord as kev said give us that challenge of when we talk about the queen use it as an opportunity to share our faith lord we thank you for our time together this morning in jesus name amen